Zito from seventh to first in the final event. You are a champion. And Oleksiak has done it! The girl from the six has got six Olympic medals. The substitute for Canada just about gets it through. It's a glory gold for Canada. Kathy Lifty goes up to Graham, takes the lead, looks a winner, draws away from Graham and Mary. This is a famous victory, a magnificent performance. It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming your way today for a massive interview. We are speaking with an Australian basketball legend, Australian Hall of Fame basketball member, if you don't mind, in two-time Olympian Chris Anstey, represented the Boomers at the Sydney Olympics in 2000 and the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And this is a great chat with Chris, learning about his accidental discovery of basketball and how he got involved in the sport, which other sport we very nearly could have seen him in the Olympics in had things gone a certain way. And his experiences at both his Olympics talks about how he had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows during his Olympic career playing for Australia in a junior tournament in the 90s in which Australia created history against the USA and just what it would mean to him to see his own daughter potentially lining up for Australia at the Olympics. His daughter Izzy is uh, doing quite well out there currently on the world stage and uh, what that would mean to him to see if she could follow in her father's footsteps. And a great story with Izzy and getting her to meet her NBA idol, a legend of the NBA, who Chris played with, and how he was able to arrange dinner at their house. So uh, a great story there that you will hear in this interview. It's a fantastic chat, and I know you are going to love every single second of it. So here's our chat with two-time Australian Olympic basketball player Chris Anstey. Such an honour to be able to welcome our next guest to the show, a legend of Australian basketball, an Australian Basketball Hall of Fame member competing in two Olympics for the Boomers in Sydney in 2000 and in Beijing in 2008. And outside of that, an esteemed career that has covered all corners of the globe. He competed in the NBA, the NBL, in Russia, everywhere else in the world. There is just so many places where there's a basketball hoop. I'm sure this guy has uh, shot a couple along the way. It is an absolute honour to welcome to Off the Podium the one, the only, Mr. Chris Anstey. Chris, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on Off the Podium. Thank you. It's, it sounds like I'm really disloyal, doesn't it? When you when you when you reel off the teams I've played played ball like that, it's uh, I never wondered quite how it sounds. Yes, yes. You, you got to got to go where the balls are going in the hoop, right, and kind of where they want you and where you want to play. So you know that's fine. You're allowed to switch. You got to go where you wanted. Exactly, exactly. But I'm actually intrigued because obviously an esteemed career and sort of, as I just mentioned to you off air, sort of watched a few of your other interviews you've done, some of your other podcasts. And obviously a lot of people love to talk to you about your, your NBA days, your NBL days and all that kind of stuff. But an Olympic specific one, do you often get sort of asked to just talk in general about your international career rather than sort of the other stuff? Uh, not, not often. And yeah, the NBA has, you know, everybody wants to know about it because I guess when I went through and even at this stage, pretty rare. Um, but yeah, the the Olympic stuff and representing Australia, it's yeah, it's it's one we speak about probably more in, in smaller circles, and it's one where if you ask me what was one of the highlights of my career, I'd tell you to be walking into that Olympic Stadium in Sydney 
uh, with Andrew Gaze at the front waving the flag and having all of my basketball teammates from the men's and women's side right there front and centre and hearing that roar when we walked in. If you ask me what one of the, the lowlights would be, it would be exactly two weeks later when we couldn't get couldn't get it done in the semi-final and then couldn't get it done in the bronze medal game. So it's been, you know, I, I got back in 2008. I missed 2004 with an injury. Um, and we spotted the start. We're playing great basketball at the end of the Olympics in Beijing. But because we didn't start the tournament well, we crossed over against the USA. Um, and again, that was probably the first time I've ever gone into a, a basketball game against a senior USA men's basketball team thinking we could win uh, and made a good fist of it in the first half with Kobe Bryant went crazy in the third quarter and, and they were too much. So as we fast forward and, and celebrate what the boomers did in Tokyo and, and Patty Mills playing probably the best game of basketball I've ever seen anyone in an Australian Jersey play. And that's a reasonably, reasonably big comment. I understand, but um you know, as happy and as excited we are, there's all. it also brings back the disappointment that we couldn't bring that medal home or win it on home soil, you know, 20 years earlier. Yeah, it's so much to sort of look at there because I think any basketball fan in Australia growing up would remember those moments. I mean, uh, clearly I'm sitting here, you know, decked out in Bulls attire and clearly I grew up in the 90s, obviously, as you can probably understand then, Chris. But, I, I mean, I vividly remember Sydney watching that and it's always a highlight i think for basketball fans to watch that and, and non-basketball fans too it's it's the boomers it's the opals we love watching the basketball and you you ride those highs and lows with both teams at an olympics and until tokyo unfortunately for the boomers it was often uh, quite a, a heartbreaking ending all the time yeah it was and the, the interesting part is you know as you go as you get older and you're a little bit further removed from any experience you have on court or in an emotional environment, you you see it a little bit differently. But you know, at the time, you know, we didn't start the Sydney Olympic Games well, and you know, our, our coaching staff made the choice to play Ricky Grace more and to play Jason Smith more and to, to play some of those lesser used players who were able to perform really well, especially Ricky, I think. Um, but then when we got to the game that really mattered, we reverted back to what hadn't worked early in the tournament, which was how we remembered it at the time. Now, given the luxury of time that's passed, it was probably the right choice. But I guess in the moment, it made it probably harder for some of the guys to, especially in such a big loss, they were both blowouts. And that was the hard part where I think any time you have a disappointing loss, and you don't play much or in fact you're injured or don't play at all, the ego in you would like to think that you could have contributed to a more positive result. And that was certainly the feeling within the group at some level. So I suppose there are a lot of levels of disappointment um, from a number of the players in the group, but the biggest one was exactly that. We, we didn't perform well. And, you know, Luke Longley missed uh, that semi-final game, I believe, or, or maybe both the, the semi and the bronze, but, um, there were certainly opportunities that weren't taken and we couldn't step up in his absence. I want to take a step back a little bit to the fact that you could have very much nearly gone to the Olympics in a completely different sport, Chris. For some people who may not be aware of, you were a pretty handy tennis player growing up and made the switch to basketball uh, quite late by some standards. But did you ever sort of uh, think that maybe if you were to go to an Olympics, it might be on a different court uh, with a racket <laughs> in your hand rather than a ball? You know, I, I never... I never aspired to be an Olympian as a tennis player. Um, 
for me, it probably wasn't an Olympic sport. Um, it wasn't one that I considered when it was the Grand Slams. Um, and I wanted to do that. I, I wasn't that good. I, I think when I when I made the change to basketball, it was, it was an accidental change, but I was also realising that there are a lot of players who were going past me. Um, you know, coupled with, you know, I grew up with Dustin Fletcher who played AFL footy for, for a long time in Essendon and we went through a, a period of time between 13 and 17 or 13 and 16 and a half where we, we honestly, we didn't lose a match in even the biggest tournaments around Australia, but wow. we could never get selected to go and represent the state or the country as a doubles combination. They'd just take the two best singles players who we'd continually beat in games of doubles uh, so we continually missed out. If, if it wasn't going to be in doubles, we weren't quite good enough as singles players, unfortunately. But um, no, the Olympics wasn't on the, you know, wasn't on the to-do list, I suppose, as a tennis player. The Grand Slams were. But um, I was very fortunate to find another sport that was a little bit more realistic for me. It's interesting about Dustin Fletcher because I also believe you played with Mark Philippoussis, didn't you, as well? At, at I played point. against Mark. So played Mark and I Mark. never played doubles together. Um, ironically, he was I beat Mark in my second last game of tournament play ever in one of the, the tournaments at, at, at Melbourne Park. Wow. Um, ended up beating him in a semi-final, lost in the final to Tasso Vasiliadis. I still remember, but he, they were both on the Australian team. Now, granted... Mark was a year and a little bit younger than me, so an age group below and then had a few more months. So clearly, it's interesting when I speak about Mark or when I reflect on Mark, he had a, a tricky childhood, um, a lot of pressure on him. And yeah, to be honest, he wasn't the best junior going around. And there are a lot of people and a lot of commentary around the fact that Mark Philippoussis underachieved given the talent he had and the lack of Grand Slam results he had because he did beat Pete Sampras at the Australian Open, but then lost to either Mark Woodford or Todd Woodbridge next round. The thing I can't remember, but I'll, I'll tell anyone who listens that I think from where he came from, Mark Philippus has overachieved and to be as great as what he was to have some of the wins he did. Um, because as I said, he certainly wasn't the best junior in the country or the state. He was, talented and erratic and had a, had a hard, you know, how hard go of it. So I'm, you know, very, very respectful and of, of what Mark was able to do and supported him from afar for, for a lot of years. Still made two Grand Slam finals and then had a pretty trashy reality show, I think, many years later. Where he tried to like, <laughs> we find a wife or something, wasn't show. it? <laughs> yeah, one of, one of those ones. You mentioned sort of an accidental switch to, to basketball. So uh, how do you accidentally, I guess, change sports, which is a little bit different to tennis, of course? Yeah, I filled in for my brother. Uh, my younger brother played a low-level game at Kiowa where I grew up and they were short on numbers. And without going into all of the details of the night, I agreed to fill in eventually. Um, decided along the way that instead of kicking rocks and not really caring because I didn't want to be there, I'd try. And for me, all that meant was running. And I played tennis. I'd been, I could move. Um, so I tried. And in a basketball, in a three-court basketball stadium with probably a dozen people who were watching the games that weren't involved in them, one of them was a, a junior basketball coach for the Melbourne Tigers Basketball Club. And he didn't get onto me for months. Uh, this was before mobile phones and social media and all those kinds of things. He was looking for the club I played for. Um, clearly, I didn't play for one, so he failed, but somehow got a hold of me and convinced me to come down and try out. And I did. And 
enjoy. You know, I, I, I'll say to people, I never loved basketball, but I loved the people in it, and I loved the fact that my height was considered a positive, not a point of difference. And there are a lot of reasons that didn't involve loving the game of basketball that kept me coming back. But the, the number one was, was Des Middleton at the start and, and that group that I joined at the Melbourne Tigers and then Al Westover and that same group of juniors that I went through with, that they were the ones who made basketball fun and I grew to love the sport the longer I became involved in it and probably the better I got at it. When it came to the the similarities between tennis and basketball outside of the running, is there anything else that really comes to, to mind that helped you transfer over into basketball? Yeah, I think it's footwork. Um, I was surprised to learn that seven-footers were considered slow all the time. Um, that hand-eye coordination, maybe depth perception, and I could always catch, I could always change direction, and I found some of the mobility things we had to do not came naturally because I've worked on them for a lot of years on a tennis court, but I, I always needed to be as agile as smaller players. And I always thought that it was a cop out for, for bigger basketball players to have a different set of targets for agility work and speed work than what the guards had. I just wanted to, to win. Um, so I, I was pretty naive in that thought, but it, it served me well. When it came, you mentioned before about, tennis the eye the eyes were on the grand slams when you switch into basketball and you sort of progress through those ranks do you then go okay the nba is a pinnacle i want to make the nbl do you ever think of an olympics possibility then when you start you know progressing through the no, ranks not, of not for years and it was almost a joke that i was still playing and i was at the same club as andrew gaze and mark bradkin leonard copeland and even before I got into that NBL team and I, and I made that, I played about three minutes a game that first year in 1994. And it wasn't until I met Brian Gorgian, who was a coach of the Southeast Melbourne Magic that, and when he said those things that you've just said, actually, he, he told me he saw potential in me to represent the country and to really have a swing at being an NBA athlete. And I nearly left. I, I just thought that's the worst sales pitch I've ever heard. Um, but then he went on and, and told me how and, told me that I'd be trying to represent the country with guys like Sam McKinnon, Jason Smith, Frank Drimmick, who were all on that similar kind of aspirational journey, I suppose. And all of us ended up representing the country as did Tony Ronaldson, John Dorge, and a lot of those Southeast Melbourne Magic teammates of mine. So, you know, once he started digging in and it became a reality or a potential reality, it was just a whole different level of work rate and, commitment, dedication, all those sorts of cliches that you'll hear. But no, I never thought about it until I sat on a couch and looked Brian Gorgian in the eye and he was the one that that put it into my head. Had you grown up watching the Olympics just as a, as a kid? I mean, I saw a great um, interview that you did and you mentioned your, your parents had woken you up, I think, as a young boy to watch the America's Cup. So I don't know if they were sort of, you know, getting you in front of the couch every four years for an Olympics as well, were they? Yeah, yeah, I would. And I was probably like anyone else where it was more athletics and swimming and the events where you, you start at a point, you finish at a point, whoever gets their first wins. Um, yeah, there weren't as many, or there, there wasn't as widely covered. I wasn't as interested in the team stuff. I always held that old school, traditional, not, probably interest in the sports that had always been there or the events that had always been there. You know, bigger, stronger, faster, all that sort of thing. Can you throw a javelin further? Can you run far? So probably didn't watch those events as much, but 
I was, I was a little bit like everyone else where I got interested in the first basketball game or the first series of basketball games I can remember watching were one or two back in, in Barcelona when the dream team came and you just saw a team that demolished everyone. Yeah. And you kind of got a glimpse of, well, you probably got an understanding that it wasn't fair. They were just too much better and so much better than the rest of the world. And you know, extrapolating that out a little bit, it's amazing how much the world's caught up uh, to the United States in basketball as we sit here and talk today. So, um, no, look, again, the Olympics was for, for entertainment purposes, not aspirational. You were part of the under-22 side that won the world champs in Melbourne, I believe, in your home city in 1997. You were the tournament MVP as well, though. So was that your first real taste of representing Australia and kind of what yeah. was that experience like being able to do that in home court? Yeah, it was great, and it was. Um, I'd only represented my state a couple of times, um, having started so late, and I joined a silver medal winning under-17 or 19s team that, Sam McKinnon. So the, the core of that group played in and, you know, Ian Stacker, our coach, talks about the drive within that group who had just missed out last time to go one better. And I was a part of the group who, you know, the group of three players, all the bigs, myself, Ben Pepper and Ben Melmoth, who were added to that group. Um, yes, we started the tournament badly. Um, I'd come back at that stage from an NBA camp with the Dallas Mavericks, a, a summer league, and there was probably more pressure on me than I felt I deserved and didn't perform well at the start. And it took getting out of the group and just leaving the hotel for a night to probably figure out what was important and just to go and be me. And, you know, we ended up due to those losses crossing over against the United States. And to the best of my knowledge, it was the first time an Australian men's basketball team had ever beaten the United States in any form. So we did that. And the belief after that game was, was incredible. We, we beat Argentina on the buzzer when Aaron Traher hit what I still consider one of the biggest shots in Australian basketball history um, and then ran over the top of, of Turkey in the gold medal game. So, look, to do something for the first time or that's never been done before is special and that in so many ways was a, was a very, very special tournament. Because obviously for you, I mean, big period, you're mentioning NBA was happening around that time and, and you know, did all right in the NBL in the lead up to that. But once you do well in an international tournament, is that then when a switch flicks in your head? Well, Sydney's only a couple of years away. This could be all right. I might be with a chance here. Yeah, yeah, I guess I did. Um, but again, you, you get it's, it's not like swimming or athletics where you commit four years of training to an event every four years. You've got NBL championships to win. I had the NBA to try to settle into. Uh, there were so many other basketball events happening and teams I needed to play for that it's in the back of your mind, I suppose, and it's an aspirational goal. And, you know, coming from the NBA, I suppose, I thought I had to have been a chance and I knew how well I was playing, um, but you've still got to do it. So to be named in that team was, was incredible. And as I mentioned right off the top, that, one of the highlights of my career and probably the low light of my basketball career all happened within two weeks of each other. Because it was obviously a very different time for basketball in Australia. I mean, God, NBL, peak NBL in the 90s. I mean, just absolutely huge. And it's obviously, you know, pretty much up there again to this day in a similar level. But I guess whereas today we've got so many Australians who are in the NBA, so many Australians who are doing so well in Europe, 
back then there was only a couple of you in the NBA at that stage and, and a lot of it was coming from the NBL. I mean, how do you look back on how an Australian team was chosen back then versus now? Is one more reliant on say, oh, we've got NBA players, this is automatic versus, oh, we need to get the NBL guys and if the NBA players are available, sort of a balance sort of between the two periods. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of that, a, li- a little bit of style of play. You, you, back then you always knew that that core group would get picked, you know, Jays, Vlahov, uh, Bradkey, Heel, Longley, all these guys would just walk up, start. So you're sort of essentially coming into a group, always understood you were playing for probably, or sorry, competing for four or five spots. Uh, so that was tricky. Um, but, I, but I think the biggest difference we've seen with now the NBA players being available to play um, is the style of play that you see the Boomers playing. It, it's not an NBL domestic type style of play that, that suited that group. It's a more international style of play that allows for the improved skill sets. It allows to, yeah, the, the defensive strategies will will deal better with the Luka Doncic's of the world and those tough European and NBA guys. So that's, that's probably the biggest difference. Again, there are only, I think when we got selected, it was just Luke and I um, in that Sydney Olympic squad that were in the NBA. So certainly we had to go and readjust back to the system that they were using. And it didn't, I didn't mind it because I'd played within first and thirds before, which was the offensive structure we ran. But, you know, Luke hadn't seen anything like that for a long time. And, you know, we probably didn't see much of him in the block and saw more of him out in the three-point line. But no, it's just, I guess, you don't get as much time together now as what you did then because players are being selected from around the world. So when you get them in, you simplify things, you, you, you put in place strategies that probably allow us or each individual to, to be in a position of success or to succeed. And yeah, you take a swing and I'm so glad we finally took a swing and connected and got that medal in Tokyo. I, I know when it comes to say soccer, there's often that club versus country debate. And generally for an Olympics, obviously an Olympics is usually in an off season for the NBA. But is there ever much of a backlash in terms of the clubs in the NBA going, well, we don't want you to possibly get hurt in the Olympics or things like that? Or does it really come down to the player's decision? If they get selected, they can make that decision themselves. Both. Um, there's a love of the game contract uh, clause in, any, in every NBA uh, contract now that I believe Michael Jordan instigated, which allows players to represent their country and, in fact, to play in some of these other smaller tournaments. And we've just seen Chet Holmgren get injured in one. So... It might be a touchy subject, but yeah, I think you see more and more current and high-level NBA players representing their countries now because the NBA understands that there's a benefit to exposing its players to different styles of play because European there's a European style of play influence creeping into the NBA across all teams. Um, and it's of great benefit to have their players involved in that at the highest level internationally in FIBA tournaments. So uh, certainly the higher level players still play. It is a risk and probably more of a risk for free agents who don't have a guaranteed contract. So to the best of my knowledge, if an NBA player gets injured representing their country, their contract is insured. Uh, if, an, if a free agent gets injured representing their country, they don't, they can't insure a contract because they don't have one. So, um, you know, there are a couple of uninsured, a couple of uncontracted players at the moment uh, playing over in the European Championships and 
it'll be interesting to see how they do, whether that helps them get back in or whether, and we hope they don't, of course, get injured. So, look, it's it's personal preference, but when someone's paying you $100 million or tens of millions of dollars, they're going to have a say. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you sort of, that period for Sydney, because that was what, around about the time your time ended with Chicago, so were you in that period of your time in the NBA was over, I can do this, or were you still in that process of, oh, I might be you know, get drafted by another team? Sort of what was that? Yeah, look, I chose to do it and I was certainly trying to get another contract and the Bulls had requested that I stay throughout the summer and not play the Olympic Games to, to, to work on the strength and conditioning element of the game and some skill work with their own coaches, but they wouldn't guarantee me a contract. So in my mind, I could have potentially missed out on both. Now, I'll always be proud and happy of the choice I made to to play or to make myself available for the Sydney Olympics, but... Certainly, if the Bulls had have said, here's 10 million bucks for three years, now make that choice, mm. it would have been a much harder choice to make. Which I guess also the, the difficult thing about that too, a home Olympics as well. It's not just an Olympics, it's a home Olympics as well. So that would have been a very tricky decision. Yeah, and look, it, would, it was once in a lifetime. Um, you know, we will get another one in Australia, we now know, yeah. but to play in one was once in a lifetime. But there's always the argument as well that to earn money that will set your family up and last maybe two lifetimes is also very tempting. So it's a tough choice. And I'd like to have think I would like to have thought I would have been able to do both and I would have fought for that, but it would have been a harder choice. It must be a fascinating experience when you get to Sydney for those Olympics in the lead up. I mean, you know, you've played in the NBA, you've played at the the peak for, for club basketball and no doubt experienced some amazing things over there. But then to switch focus to an international tournament and Olympics in your home country. I mean, were you prepared for kind of everything that, that came with that? Obviously, you talked about entering that stadium, but just in the lead up and how much Sydney got behind those Olympics. Yeah, it's funny because we don't really experience that much. You, you only get the stadium. You don't, as a participant of an Olympic Games, you're not out at the bars or out in the city and yeah, you, you're not attending all of the things that the fans and spectators do that really create that environment. We're sitting in an Olympic village of basketball players competing in an event that, go, that starts on day one and finishes on day 14. And you've got athletes stretching, you've got recovery, you've got training, you, that, that's all you get. So you really don't get a sense of that. It's only been, you know, I've had a greater sense of that even watching my own daughter play at a world championship, a junior world championships or, you know, going to a, a tournament and, and, and involving myself in that. And I love it but you just don't get a sense as a player because you're there to do a job. That opening ceremony, though, as you mentioned, incredible, you know, highlight of your career. To have Andrew Gaze, legend, obviously, carry that flag as well. I mean, what was the mood like in the Boomers for those Olympics? Obviously, the disappointment of Atlanta getting so close then. They'd gotten fourth in Seoul. Was there that just mood in the camp that we're going to get a medal this time around? We're, we're ready? This is going to happen? Yeah, we, we thought we were, look, one of the most disappointing things I've written this was our – you know, Coach Barry Barnes had come up with a motto with, with the group and it was metal or bust. And we had MOB written on these hoodies that we had made up. We wore them around the village and that was our mantra, metal or bust. When we failed in our attempt to win a medal, there were a lot of us who were really disappointed that, you know, in the press conference after when they, and it became a secret, we never told anyone what they stood for, but um, in the press conference after, you know, Barry went and said it stood for men's Olympic basketball. And we, we didn't own the fact that we failed. We, we own the fact that or we presented the fact that we did really well, which we did, but we failed on, on what we set out to do. But um, 
Now, look, it's interesting when fast forward and again, as, as great as that Olympic, uh, the opening ceremony was, I'd never do it again. Um, and I didn't do it in Beijing because you're on your feet for four or five hours. You, 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 know, you, you heard it into a stadium before that and you play the next day, you're exhausted. And you'd never, you know, the greatest distraction of the Olympic Games is the Olympic Games themselves. And we were flat that first game and we lost. And, you know, Andrew Bogut and I sat in the room in Beijing. We tried to convince the players not to go to the opening ceremony. We sat back and watched everyone else went. You know, we lost the first game to Croatia, who we'd beaten twice in the weeks leading up. They were sitting at home recovering and we were, we were flat. So I'd always say, and, you know, I know Patty and the, the team carried the flag in, in Tokyo, but it was a, a greatly abbreviated ceremony. Don't do it. You know, I'd, I'd much rather have a medal around my neck and talk about that the rest of my life than have that day of experience being in a stadium, stadium and being a part of it because it takes so much out of you to be a part of an opening ceremony. And, you know, I don't regret much because it was great, but I, I wish we hadn't have gone because that might have made the difference between fourth and first, second or third. Because you mentioned a few times about the not getting off to a good start aspect, which lose the opening two games in, in Sydney and, I mean, ultimately end up finishing third in that group. Very tight group, of course, but, uh, you know, ultimately, as you said, it's a difference between finishing a couple of positions here and there. So, I mean, how, when you go into a tournament like this as a team, obviously you're thinking about a medal, but do you still take to the point like we've got to start off well because that will set a, a tone for the rest of the tournament? Yeah, I don't think we did that well enough in, in either of those two Olympic games, but, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you know, experience will tell you that that first game, the very first quarter of the first game is just as important as the fourth quarter of your final pool game when it comes to... Um, giving yourself the best chance of a, of a favourable crossover and in turn, the best chance of a, of a medal. Um, the two Olympic Games I was a part of, we didn't get favourable crossovers, although we made the semifinals in Sydney. But, um, yeah, one of the best games of international basketball I've ever been a part of at the highest level was, you know, we'd, be, we'd never beaten Lithuania in international competition. We'd be, and they were undefeated in Beijing. We'd beaten by 30. We were flying. We'd beaten Russia. Um, comfortably, and they were a powerhouse. But it was too late because we'd lost that game to Croatia and we crossed over against the USA. Um, you know, crossing over against an Italy or someone, I feel like we were playing well enough to medal in Beijing, but, you know, we finished outside the top eight, because, outside the top four because we came across the USA. I'm glad you mentioned Lithuania because that was my next question because I remember as a kid hating Lithuania in basketball because they beat us in Atlanta, they beat us in Sydney, and then you go and get that revenge in Beijing. I, I don't think people today realise that rivalry we had with Lithuania for a little period of time there, Chris. It's interesting because they're, they're such a dominant basketball nation and as I was introduced to international basketball, we kept hearing about Lithuania, but in the same breath we also heard about how much of an underdog we were as a small country, as Australia and our small population. And you think, hang on a sec, that, that doesn't compute in my head. Lithuania are a thousandth the size of Australia and their population smaller yet, we're calling them a powerhouse. So I was, I never liked that underdog mentality that we carried around with us or, or lent into for, for a lot of years that I was involved. I, Again, I was naive enough to think that we should be able to compete with some of these nations because we were actually bigger and had more players. We just, yeah, I suppose I didn't like 
the built-in excuse that if we get if we didn't get it done, we're underdogs anyway. Um, and I'm really glad to see the boomers' cultures evolve into that now. And is that something that sticks in that mental aspect in any form of the game, be it NBA, NBL, Olympics, that if you've got a side which there's maybe a bit of a bogeyness against them that you just can never seem to beat, that you go into those games thinking a little bit differently? Sometimes, and you know, I've had experiences in, in NBL games where the teams I was playing for hadn't been able to beat a team in years, and as much as they'll stand in front of you and say, yeah, we think we can win until you actually demonstrate that you can, that belief's not the same. So I think oftentimes you need proof and getting a victory against anyone changes your mindset from I think we can to I know we can because we've seen it, we've done it. Um, and that has to help confidence. So doing, as I mentioned earlier, I'm doing something for the first time is really difficult, but when you do, it opens up the possibilities of doing so many even bigger and better things. You mentioned, obviously, Beijing and Sydney. Athens ultimately didn't happen. Injury, tell us what happened there and how disappointing was it to miss out on Athens? I didn't watch a second. I went on holiday and didn't turn the TV on. That was my way to cope. I, I was gutted. Um, you know, for me, I saw it as I saw Athens as an opportunity to have a bigger role, to, to positively impact the group, yeah, that that the core group I'd mentioned before, Longley, Vlahov, Bradkey, Gaze, Keel, actually Shane played, but that the core group that had, had carried the nation through the previous three and four Olympic Games retired. Um, guys like John Riley, Jason Smith, Sam McKinnon was a big part. I just saw it as a really great opportunity to be a bigger part on the floor and to not be able to do that, especially when you know, I think we finished ninth off the top of my head, but I, I did go back and watch a little bit of it. But at the time, it was just too hard. And I went on holidays. I didn't watch it. Um, came back and did everything I can, to, everything I could to be ready for the next time. And then Beijing comes along, and you talk about that previous generation, but then you're in Beijing with this new generation. You mentioned Bogut, Paddy Mills' first Olympics, of course, too. I mean, what was that like transitioning from a Sydney Olympics where you've got this golden generation of men's basketball players coming to the end, and now you're sort of at the opposite where you've got this new golden generation of men's basketball players right at the beginning of their career? Yeah, for, for me, it was, I always believed that I was probably one of the last people picked on that team. And my role, I always knew, would be smaller. Again, Athens would have been my, my wheelhouse when I was playing great. But having said that, I, I, I just won the most valuable player award of the, the National Basketball League. We won a championship. Um, but, yeah, my role I saw was to back up Bogut, to back up Dave Anderson, uh, to be a, a level head for a guy who wasn't going to play probably that many minutes unless required. And that probably alleviate a lot of the pressure to perform, which probably didn't feel much often anyway. But for me, it was about the enjoyment of it. And probably personally, I played as well as I had in international competition. Um, I shot the ball really well. I you know, had some good results. And we mentioned we beat Lithuania and Russia, but still disappointed we couldn't do better. But you mentioned Patty Mills, Joe Ingalls was one that you didn't mention. It was their first oh. Olympic Games and they were both incredible to be around and we still remember them you know being in awe of team usa and in fact asking for autographs we're like hang on we're, we're about to play against these guys and i, and I say that not to, to make fun of those two as very very young players but to show 
how far that they've come. It's it, I marvel at how well they've both done and other guys have done from that group to have seen them as very young players, as we all were, but to continue that growth in their journey to be you know, the players they are, not only for Australia, but in the NBA today. I love hearing stories like that because often when we get guests on the show here and we say talk about your village experience where you're bumping into other athletes, often people on this show will say, oh, and I got to see Kobe Bryant, I got to see Kevin Durant, whereas for you, they're just your, your colleagues and that you're, you're playing with them. But the one story I'd love for you to share with us on the show, I know you've shared this multiple times, but I, I need you to share it, is the Michael Jordan game and your mm-hmm. idea to try and get a photo with Michael Jordan in the one yeah. game you played against him in the NBA. Well, I was only ever going to get one chance to play him, and I'd been starting sort of 30-odd minutes a game. I looked it up, um, and so getting to the game, my family and my friends were there. It was like the Beatles had come to town. The drive took twice as long, and I remember all of these different emotions and different moments within it, and the first one was actually rushing to get changed to get out on the court and see him. And I sort of remember picking up the ball at half court and backing back towards my basket as I watched Michael Jordan shooting around, just thinking this is real. Um, transitioning into the one of the last things our coach Don Nelson told us was that Sean Bradley would start and I wouldn't, which you know, I was disappointed with that, but I thought it won't take long to get in and didn't play a second in that first half and we were down and you know, my mindset at half time, I'm normally really good and invested in everything a coach says, but I'm thinking, geez, how, how, like you said, how do I get a photo with Michael Jordan? And I'm, I'm almost hoping for, for, for garbage time where I might get in where we're getting blown out. He might still be on the floor because this is before social media. It's before the games were televised here in Australia. It wasn't written much about. And I, my thought was my tennis mates aren't going to believe this. And so all I thought at half time when I came in, I thought if I get in and it's garbage time and Jordan's in, I'm going to hit him, foul him so hard as soon as I possibly can, so hard that we'll start a fight and somebody has to take a photo of that. <laughs> um, I say to people, it wasn't my best thought, but it was my only one at the time. And, you know, I, I, was, I was glad it didn't come to that. I um, got substituted in early in the third quarter and, you know, it became this surreal experience as they're flying up and down the floor, sort of, I've started to use the analogy of when a dog's running up and down the beach, its ears are flapping everywhere, its tongue's going, you're like, I'm running. I'm like, I'm playing Michael Jordan. Um, and then I realised how bad I was going, I hadn't touched the ball and I got myself a couple of free throws and shot two of the worst free throws I could have ever shot. All I could think of when I was standing on the free throw line right in front of the Bulls bench was, they must be frantically looking through their notes going, who's that? Hmm. You know, I just didn't feel like I belonged. And when I made, when I missed those two free throws, I'd, again, one of those clear memories was, God, I couldn't get any worse. I'm about to be dragged. That was my two-minute opportunity done. I thought, well, I might as well enjoy the next 30 or 40 seconds until I get subbed out. And, you know, I got a rebound and touched the ball a few times and didn't get dragged. But, yeah, if, I, if this was a different environment, I'd say to people, I stopped caring what people thought and I just started enjoying myself. And I had a really good second half. We came back. Cedric Sabalos hits a three to, to send us into overtime. And I end up playing the last three and a half minutes of overtime and scoring a couple of times and getting a rebound against Dennis Rodman. And he had 30 for the game probably, but I had three, but I had one. Um, and we won. And it's, it's just this moment where you reflect back and you think a couple of things. I've never lost a game of basketball to Michael Jordan. 
exactly. and he's not calling me for a rematch. But I suppose <laughs> it just, I mean, you learn more now. It was towards the end of the year. It didn't matter as much for them. But, you know, there are these moments out there all the time. I'll never forget that. And there's often times when you enter a game like that, this sense of, I suppose, a sense of knowing what the result will be. It's a foregone conclusion. We don't win this one. But, you know, allowing yourself to be naive, that thing you could succeed at things that most people think you can't. And that game for me was one of them. And I would I would hazard a guess to say that no one on the Bulls game on the Bulls roster would remember the game, but everyone on the Mavericks roster does. Um, that became one of my more memorable games throughout my basketball career, of course, to play against Michael Jordan. Well, you made it on to the last dance, a little scuffle, Dennis I got, Rodman. I got, so. my, my whole basketball career was reduced to a two-second snippet through lockdown, which I got more calls about that than I have anything else in probably since, you know, one of my kids was born. I haven't had that many messages. <laughs> which did you ever um, get a chance to get a photo with MJ? Bulls days, if you came to training? No, like that? no, I didn't. Screenshots of videos is what people have sent me over the years, but... You know, I've, I've never been anyone to go and get photos with anyone like that. I'd much prefer to, to be in the moment, listen to what they're saying, treat them as normal human beings and not impose on their time, knowing that they get that all the time. And it's, you know, I've sort of crept into to running these events now and, and running some other things where we, you know, we're around some high-profile people and, you know, the instructions always think of the, think of the 10 questions they get asked all the time. And the things they get asked for, the photo, yeah, don't go anywhere near them. Enjoy being there. I'll organise a group photo at the end, but as soon as you go and ask for a photo or ask that question that the person's sick of answering 100 times a day, you know, there's, a, there's a divide between you and them. You're not treating them as the human being. You're treating them as the, as the public figure. So I'm always fascinated more so to get into a room behind closed doors with no cameras and have these moments of time with people. And, you know, Michael Jordan did turn up to practice a few times and I was very happy to sit back and be around the, the, the periphery and just observe and say day on the way past. And that was about it. How am I going, Chris, in terms of the 10 questions you always got asked? Have I answered about seven of them? Asked about no, seven of them so far? Funny. I'll say to people all the time, if you walk up and ask me how tall I am or make comment about my height or my son's height, you, your conversation's done. All right. Well, there um, goes that next question. Thanks for letting me know that one. Uh, <laughs> no, no, look, I, no, look, it was funny. I'll tell you a story about my daughter. She She's at UCLA at the moment, and she, I've, I've had this conversation with her, and she's been lucky to meet some of – my basketball friends who are reasonably high profile over the years and she sees them just as them, um, which is so great in so many ways. Um, but, you know, she was invited. She's at UCLA at the moment. She was invited to the premiere. I think the movie was called Hustle uh, with Adam Sandler, LeBron James and some others. And she actually got to meet LeBron and to meet Adam Sandler and to meet Boban and a few of those other NBA guys and, while people were scuffling for autographs and photos and, and sneaking up behind and, and trying to take the, the secret selfie, um, Adam Sandler walked by and, you know, they I made eye contact and she sort of said, God, Adam, I'm fascinated to know you travel a lot. You know, where's your favourite coffee place when you come to Hollywood? And, you know, 
and it was the coffee place that she goes to and they had maybe this 20 second interaction she never asked for a photo she treated him like a human being and asked a question relevant to him the person not him the movie star and Fantastic. I was proud of her for doing it um, and she had a couple of short conversations with others but never took the photo and never fangirled them just treated them as human beings and when she told me that story I probably told her how proud I was of her for acting that way and treating them like that but maybe I didn't do a good enough job but no she's she's in a good place is he at the moment that's a great story fantastic and it's, it's so fascinating you say that though and particularly with what you're doing now because I mean, you played in the NBA. You were playing against these people who people still to this day idolise. It was just your job. So you're around that all the time. So they are just colleagues. They're regular people. And it's fascinating on that crossover of when, say, like you're at the Olympics and you might bump into a, a Rafael Nadal in Beijing or a Roger Federer, you know, people like this who, if you had have continued your tennis career, also would have just been colleagues. So it's interesting, I guess, you would see even at the Olympics that crossover of athletes who are themselves high profile very respected people but who are also still just people and oh my god look who these people are you know what i i grew up playing tennis i'm a tennis fan and i a, a tennis coach friend of mine invited me to, to to dinner a few australian opens ago and it turned out that we had dinner with boris becker sort of a group wow. of eight of us and and we sat around and we chatted and it's exactly that we shared stories and offered to pick up the bill and all that, or the tab and that kind of thing. And he paid and, you know, my throwaway line at the end of a really nice three hour dinner, not only with Boris Becker and his, his wife was, you know, some other really fun people at the table, but my throwaway line was mate, I appreciate you paying for dinner. If you want to get away from the tennis crowd, we're actually having a dinner with my mates on Thursday night in the restaurant next door. You feel free to drop in and we'll, we'll pull up an extra seat. And he turned up. Wow. And I just thought, and I told my mates and they thought it was incredible. And I had this same sort of conversation, but I, I just still reckon that that's where the crossover lies and where I am now with what I do is that I can see both sides. Um, I, I just reckon there are some incredible stories to be told, but you don't get them if you ask what everybody else has asked. Um, and I'm really passionate about you know, we're bringing Luke down to you in Hobart in, in a few weeks' time and Luke Longley and he's got this incredible story but he's really hard to get in front of and um, he's quite the introvert if you don't know him. So for us, for him to trust us to help share his story in person for the first time, we hope that we're trying to, you know, we're doing the right thing not only by the people we're bringing into the room but by the inverted commas talent themselves where we want to look after everyone and share their stories in the right spirit and we think that there are a lot of basketball stories that need to be told and have benefit of being told because just to use luke longley as, a, as an example i mean his story transcends basketball the, the, the lens that he got to see greatness through and the lens he saw his own career through is fascinating I've, I've been i've been lucky to hear it behind closed doors and i can't wait to hear what people think after they've listened to him um but these are the sort of things we love doing you know i'm going to be there i mean hello <laughs> what am i wearing right now uh so <laughs> it's something that i'm not exactly going to be missing but i mean it's great ideas because i think one thing i find doing this show it is those stories and 
yeah, there are the questions that everybody wants to know. And even if you've answered it a hundred times in interviews, some people might not have heard it. But like my job is I always like to try and find those angles of, okay, well, what haven't they answered before? And say with this interview, Chris, where, as I said at the top of the interview, 95% of the time you've been asked about your time in the NBA, the NBL and, and all valid, great career you've had there, obviously, but this is a different one and, you know, opportunity for you to tell that side of the the olympics that maybe not a lot of people ask about versus that one michael jordan question that clearly i also asked today no and look it's a fun story to tell i'm always happy to tell it but you know it's again i love storytelling and actual actually the storytelling in itself is what we're trying to do i wrote a book i never thought i'd write a book but i wanted the reason i did it was to tell these incredible stories and share these incredible lessons from incredible people i've been around you know, understanding that not everyone's going to get to hear them. And I've been in a privileged position to be there. Um, but, but one story that I do like sharing, and I'll share with you and feel free to cut it out. But, you know, my, my basketball journey is a long time ago. And I've learned more from being around and not competing in the sport and being able to observe through a different lens. And, yeah, my daughter, Izzy, used to love Dirk Nowitzki, still does, as a matter of fact. But he, Dirk was... You know, I used to name drop dirt to my daughter because it was funny. And she, you know, she went and did really well and made her first Australian team at under 17 and ended up taking a charge and fracturing a couple of vertebrae in her back a week before the tournament. She was devastated. Um, nothing could cheer her up for weeks. And Dirk actually sent her a jersey um, with a note in it saying, make sure you keep working, your next opportunity will come. And so anyway, Dirk went from being is his favorite player to her idol. She wow. put the jersey on, she danced around, she hugged herself, she smiled for the first time in weeks. And anyway, you fast forward and Izzy was playing well enough to get some college offers. And for the listeners who know how that college recruitment process goes, you 48 hours at each school and you, you pack things in. So we're exhausted after three visits. We're sitting at Detroit airport and I saw the, the, the dorky dad, you know, Dale, when we get to Fort Worth, you know, we were going to, to Texas Christian University. That was one of the schools on Izzy's list because her best friend went there. Um, said, why don't we jump in an Uber? We'll, we'll go into Dallas where your mum and I lived, show you where we show you where we lived before you were around, um, maybe introduce you to some friends and just the dorky parent thing. You know, she's grumpy, no, I'm tired, just in my room, room service, Netflix. She had a nap. We asked her again, same response. She slept on the plane. We'd asked her four or five times and we got to the hotel lobby and as she was walking up to the room, turned her back on me with the hotel kiosk. But one last guy, my gears, I'm begging you, you know, just go up, get changed, jump in an Uber with me. I know you're tired. Come and meet, come and meet some friends. I'd love to share where I spent two of my really incredible years with my daughter. It'd mean a lot to me. And she's come, now she's grumpy. I'm like, dad, dad, I told you I'm going to, I'm tired. I'm getting ready for tomorrow. I'm going to watch Netflix. I'm going to order room service. And like she turned away and I couldn't help myself. And I wasn't going to tell her till the next day. I said, that's a real shame because we're going to Dirk's house for dinner and he was looking forward to meeting you. Wow. And she stopped and she turned and she said, what? I said, but I'll just tell him that you're too tired and you go into your room for room service. And you've never seen someone's mood change more quickly. You've never seen a teenage girl get changed. I didn't know she had the nice clothes. She had the spider eyelashes that she thinks look great, but look like there are spiders on her eyes. And we're in an Uber 15 minutes later to go and have dinner at Dirk's house. 
And it was the most normal night. We just sat and we caught up. But Izzy got to be in a room with her idol. Dirk got to ask Izzy questions. She got to ask Dirk questions. It was three or four hours. We just sat and we talked. We told old stories and she was a part of that. And if she was sitting next to me now, she'd tell you that that was one of the best days of her life. That you know, not only did she get to meet her idol, but her idol wanted her to keep, invited her to keep in touch and was so much better than what she could have imagined. But what I say to anyone who listens and especially coming out of COVID is that Izzy said no to the best night of her life five times because she couldn't be bothered. And I, I just, that was one of my and her great, you know, learnings and one a story I love telling because there'll be people here listening who it's so easy to say no coming out of COVID and it's so easy to say no to things in life because we can't be bothered. But, and it's really hard to say yes to things that may be uncomfortable, but just do it. I mean, the best day of your life might be out there and if it's not, who cares? You'll learn something from a shit experience. Um, so now that was one that has changed my daughter Izzy's perspective on the way she approaches things that maybe historically she couldn't have been bothered doing. And I just, I love sharing the story because it's relevant to my family. And um, it was one that I saw with my own eyes and I've seen the result. And uh, I just thought it might be relevant. What a fan- no, fantastic story. Thank you for sharing that. I've, I've got a follow-up on Izzy, but one thing I need to ask just as follow-up to you, Chris, who would be your person that if you were having a shit day and you said no five times and then all of a sudden somebody said to you, oh, this person's waiting, we're going to their house getting an Uber, who would that one person be for you? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd love to sit around a table and have a chat with, with people like Roger Federer, uh, maybe John McEnroe. But on that era growing up as a tennis fan, um, I just think there'd be a fascination in... I mean, can you imagine sitting around a table where no cameras, no nothing, and just hearing some stories from Bill Clinton, for example? Yeah. Um, there, there are so many incredible, again, stories that we as a general public only get the public version. Um, it's so great hearing some of those stories and being involved. So I don't know, they'd be three that come to mind without too much thought, but I could put myself in a room with anyone. You know what? The florist around the corner could probably tell me as many stories as that and I'd be just as interested. Great answer. Oh, I definitely agree with that. I mean, only Izzy, obviously doing quite well for herself. What would it mean to you if one day she was able to pull on an Opal's jersey and, and go to an Olympics just like her dad? I wouldn't care. Um, I don't care what she chooses to do um, as long as she's happy doing it. Um, you know, watching her represent Australia as a junior was an incredible experience. I was incredibly proud, but she wanted to be there. Um, I don't mind if he doesn't want to play basketball. Um, I think basketball has and will continue to teach her lessons that, you know, will set her in good stead for things much bigger than basketball. Um, that's what sport does for us people who play it, I think. Um, so whatever Izzy wants to do, if basketball is her platform, that's great. Um, but I hope it's not the only thing because she's much smarter than what I was and she's very aspirational. So I, I hope that she plays for as long as she enjoys it. Um, I hope she uses what she learns from the sport and through being in a team and through traveling and through understanding different cultures uh, because that's what basketball also teaches us to you know, be whoever it is that she wants to be and... I'll be her number one fan for as long as she's doing whatever it is she wants to do. 
We'll definitely be keeping an eye to see how that all plays out, of course. Chris, we, we like to wrap up with a set of uh, fun get-to-know-yourself questions, which I'll get to in just a moment. Two quick things. You retired in 2010. Was there ever a temptation to push on towards London and another Olympics? No, I, I, there wasn't. I, I, I'd never wanted to be that player who people are looking at, why won't he just retire? And, you know, I, I wanted to go out on my own terms. And it was forced a little bit. I had a pretty major hip surgery. You know, I feel like I had a couple more years of good basketball in me, but probably didn't have that young up-and-coming big that I felt like I could come off the bench behind and, and help mentor perhaps as someone in a smaller role, which I would have quite happily done. But um, no, happy retiring when I did and probably flirted with a comeback at one stage, but had a beer, gave myself a slap in the face and that didn't last very long at all. <laughs> Another one I've got to ask is a proud Tasmanian, Jack Jumpers. Talk, talk them up, Chris. How good was that first season? How you think it was, inc- going it season was incredible? Two? You know what? I, I, I forget being a Tassie. I'll say it to anyone that that was one of the sporting stories in Australian sport last year for me or this year for me. I, I'm very, very quick to put my hand up. I don't like being the person who said, I saw that happen. I didn't. I'd, I'd struggled to see how they'd score enough points to, to bother too many teams. I struggled to see how they'd win many more than a handful of games. What Scott Rock was able to do, and love it in effect, Scott Rock was actually one of my assistant coaches at the Dallas Mavericks, so it's good to see him doing well. Nice. Um, but what he was able to do with that group and the improvement the group was able to make as a whole was incredible. Um, I'm fascinated to see them this year because the the only benefit they had last year was that no one gave them any chance of doing anything. So whatever they did was going to be a bonus. Now they've come off a championship series appearance and there's going to be increased pressure. Um, it would be an amazing accomplishment if they were to play playoffs again. I, I think that's where their goal needs to sit. But I'll tell you what, that that crowd in in all of the final series, I, I say this, it was as close to a college environment as I've seen. And that's great. And I love the fact that you've got a national team in Tasmania. I hope that the AFL gets down there quick because you know how to support sport. And I hope that the corporate support, this is where I, my level of expertise stops. I hope that there's enough down there to support as many sports as possible because... I used to love coming down as a player. I still love coming down to do these sort of things. And one of the stories of the year for me. Because that's the thing when you said about coming down as a player. I I grew up in the Devils period and and just loved every single weekend going to the games and just some of my fondest childhood memories. And then to have that come back was just, uh, you know, absolutely incredible. So it's, it's great that it started off well and we obviously hope it continues that way. Another thing, Chris, actually quickly too, you're a bit of a podcast yourself now. You've got a podcast, uh, sort of some of the media stuff. You do. How do you find podcasting, being able to sort of share stories with other people on your show and some of your stories as well? Yeah, I, I enjoy it. I, as you say, I enjoy sharing stories. I, you know, we'll see if it gets up again this year. But, um, yeah, there's always a different slant. It's so easy to, to pick flaws and to pick negatives and it's, it's, it's easy to tell those stories and have those opinions. It's sometimes harder to go and dig for these really positive stories or to perhaps see a player's struggle from a different perspective instead of laying the boots in, maybe dig into 
you know, why it's not as easy as what it seems for far. So I like coming from that angle. I, lo I love sharing those perspectives and, you know, however many mediums we get to do that on, that, that's great, whether it's podcasts, whether it's written, whether it's events, um, we'll continue to try to, to tell those stories. Well, we look forward to uh, seeing, hearing, watching all of those, of course, along the way. Now, Chris, we wrap up every interview, series of get-to-know-you-style questions. Now, these were questions posed to Team Canada athletes ahead of Rio and Pyeongchang. And as I will always point out, if you feel like it, there's a drawing element. You don't have to. I don't know how you are at your drawing, but if you want some homework this afternoon, you can draw a, a picture of your teammate here. You can draw a, a picture of it. Well, it's a Canadian animal, an Australian animal. Again, up to you. How are you, how are your drawing skills? They're, they're, they're below par. My seven-year-old son's probably better than me, but um, we'll get him to draw dad. The, the draw drawing may not get done, but I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> get him to draw dad at the Olympics. There's one for you. Uh, start off with this one. If you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? No, it has to be Melbourne. Yeah. It's, I mean, oh, great that we're going to Brisbane. Obviously, fantastic. Sydney, but, uh, you know, come back to Melbourne. Pretty yeah, much everything's ready to go, right? You know, yeah, yeah, one of the greatest parts about, like I said, it's a bit of a distraction anyway, but the thing about these satellite major events is that you might, you don't get that one village to the bet. So you're splitting yeah. up all of the athletes. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure it would have been as great an experience if, if all of the sports went together at Homebush or the, the village. So it's going to be a, a very different experience for the athletes spread across multiple cities yeah do you hope to sort of like obviously i mean 10 years in the future but with brisbane like i mean uh some sort of involvement be it with basketball the olympics in general would you look you at know, my like involvement that? i'm very very happy to be all care and no responsibility and to go and be a fan and to to get to the whatever events and sports i want and hopefully do with some good baits and push towards gold for the boomers in brisbane i mean we will we'll always win gold, be a of course they'll, they'll always be a we've got josh giddy and dyson daniels and Therese Proctor and some of the current groups of guys who'll still be around. And I say guys wearing an Opal's World, you know, Women's World Cup top, but I think it's both. You know, it's there are some incredible stories on both. And I've been around the women's game for a long time and some great young girls coming through as well. So as excited for both, I've just probably been closer to the men's side for a little bit longer. Double gold in Brisbane, let's call it now. Uh, in your spare time, what do you most like to do? Uh, any other sport, I've, I've, I still love playing tennis. I've, I've been playing paddle, which is a new sport that's huge in Europe. But um, I'll play golf. I'll, I'll always find my way to mates and I'll always find a way to have a beer afterwards. Paddle, is that the one where you kind of got like a, a paddle and it's like squash, but like on Quite a... cross between squash and tennis, outdoor. Yeah. It's such a fun game and you can play across all levels. It's good fun. Yeah, I've heard of that. It's uh, It seems very interesting. Um, the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you was? Uh, to go out at halftime of a game in Italy for my Russian team, look up at the moon and stare to draw energy from the moon because our energy wasn't as good as what it should have been in the first half. Wow. Stare at the moon. Okay. Stare at the moon. Draw wow. energy from the moon. Were you werewolves or something? Like, I mean. <laughs> the thing was, we ended up winning. <laughs> wow. Okay. There's the secret so I don't know success. if it worked or not, but it got it <laughs> dust on our shoes and it, you know, it, it was an interesting one. Okay, then. There's uh, coaching 101 right there. Um, what is your favorite workout? Oh, any Playing sport, a game of tennis, a set of tennis, a, a, a game of pick-up basketball with mates. I don't want to go for a long run. I will ride a little bit, but something that's 
competitive and change of direction and, and fun. Growing up, who was your favourite sporting team? Sporting team? John McEnroe was my favourite sports person. Um, I never really had a team. I mean, sorry, the Western Bulldogs and and still is. So I, I was thinking basketball and all these other global sports. But I was going to say, you're from Melbourne, Chris. It's got to be a sports team got, somewhere. I've even, I've even got my mug I'm drinking from right now. You oh, wouldn't believe. look at that. No, yeah. There you go. I, I don't, like, I tell you what, I, the one AFL grand final I've been to was 2016. So uh, right. I, I've... Always got a sauce. I mean, you can probably see my Carlton hat hiding down the bottom there, so we don't talk about that. It was incredible. It was all of our family. We grew up around the corner from the Western Oval, and we've always gone. So did you go to the grand final? I sure did with my brothers and my dad. It was incredible. One of my favorite experiences of that game was I was near a uh, a man who obviously got tickets with, like, his wife and kid, but they all got separated. So then they all came together, and just watching them cry and hug each other, like, it was just the most insane it was, pro- it was probably us. That's exactly what we did. We all had individual tickets. We switched them out for standing room only. Clearly, we can see. Um, we can see over the top of any crowd because my brothers and dad are all tall as well. But, you know, we, stat- we stood at the back of the that first tier of seats. We had a good view of the ground. We were four steps from the bar. And, again, I've, God, I haven't seen dad cry. It's, it was yeah. just an incredible day. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Um, your favourite sandwich is... Oh, there's one for you. Uh, That's not B- one of the 10, is it, Chris? You know You've never what, had that a, one before. A, a BLT. BLT. A, a BLT. Anytime I go to the States, it's close to mm. the healthiest thing I can get. <laughs> that is very true. That is very true. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? One superpower? Um, to go back in time uh, mm. or to have more time. One, one of the two. I'm not sure which one. You could have both. This is off the podium. You're allowed Perfect. to be comfortable. Uh, the best candy in the world is? Oh, just plain old dairy milk chocolate for me. Oh, yes. Good answer. It's a shame that Cadbury factory here in Hobart, you can't go to it anymore. But uh, Really? You okay. Know. Did you I ever go to that back when you'd come down here? I have been years, years ago, but uh, yeah. no, clearly not for a long time. They sadly stopped the tours uh, a long time ago and you can't even go to the shop anymore. So it's just there. But That's uh, a shame. Yeah. It is a big shame. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? I always tell people it's a wrong question to ask. Ask me who I want to live with and I'll give you that answer. But it's always going to be with mates and family and wherever they are, I want to be. Um, don't, couldn't care less. When you were little, what was one thing you always thought? One thing I always thought when I was little. Mm. Um, one thing I always thought, I was naive enough to think I could do things really well. Um, and that I could be different. And, you know, I still remember even at year 10, 11, 12, going into those career information nights and having a session with the career counsellor and being told I had to take those sessions seriously when I told them I was going to be a professional athlete. Um, They didn't understand my drive to be really good at whatever I do. Um, And that was all it is. I never wanted to be better better than anyone. I just wanted to be as good as I could be and... I think I've always wanted to do things better than, than what I currently am. Did you ever go back to those career counsellors and went, I told you so? I, I, yeah, what well, the school asked me to come back and speak years later and I told the story and you saw them all spitting their coffee out and, you know, I said, hey, and I talk about pathways, they're not for everyone, but it's, you know, I, I don't like the term. I don't like the term pathway. You can be on whatever pathway you want. It's, it's how you walk along them and the people you take with you. 
that'll get you to where you're going, not the, not the actual path you're on and tell people Dustin Fletcher and I were living examples of that. Exactly. Great answer. Last one for you, Chris. Now, this is one that you've either got or you don't. What is your favorite joke to tell? Oh, no, I don't. I, I, and I certainly wouldn't be telling them on this sort of... <laughs> no, <laughs> not, not quite that level. <laughs> no, it's, it's fair to say I, my older son, Ethan, and I like uh, going, to, going to comedy nights. On, if I could tell you, I'll, I'll name drop another guy, a, a good mate of mine who's living in Tassie at the moment up in Launceston, Chris Franklin. Uh, I enjoy my my nights with him and the jokes he tells. Uh, I, I liked I like getting the Jim Jeffries when he was touring around a few months ago, and you know I sit in that sort of space. But as for one joke, nah, probably couldn't give you one. It's it's all right. That's that's off the podium after dark, basically coming soon. Chris, <laughs> before I let you go, mate, uh, social media websites anywhere people can sort of stay up to date with you and what you've got going on at all. You know what, I'm Chris Anthony 13 anywhere, but depending on where your listeners are, check it out. And I'd love for anyone to hear Luke Longley's story. You can find tickets through my Instagram, through my Facebook page. Anywhere you can find me, you'll find the tour we're doing with Luke in a few weeks' time. And we're down in Hobart on the 7th of October at Rest Point Casino. Uh, we're doing Melbourne, Hobart, Perth. We've just added a Brisbane show. We're going to Bendigo. So we can't wait to go and do that. Um, but jump on, have a conversation on social. It's, social media is not all bad if you can get into some conversation. So jump on and have a chat. Chris, I've been absolutely thrilled to have a chat with you today, mate, on the show and learn about your uh, your great international career and everything else in between. We really appreciate your time and uh, good luck uh, ahead for Izzy and everything else. And, and we'll see you in Brisbane. Maybe not on the court, but some capacity. We'll be there. Brisbane, Hobart, we'll be all over the place, but I know you'll come and find me and I look forward to it. And a massive thanks to Chris for his time on the show. Such an incredible interview, learning so much about his esteemed career. And as we sort of said a few times in that interview, of course, uh, style of interview that he doesn't probably often give. Often talks about his NBA career, NBL career, but uh, not too often the boomers side of things. So uh, we obviously appreciate Chris's time there. And I had to get the Michael Jordan story in there. I mean, if, you, if you're not sure of what I was referring to a couple of times, that interview with what I'm wearing, check out the video interview sitting here completely decked out in Chicago Bulls attire. So uh, obviously wearing the Chicago Bulls stuff as a Chicago Bulls fan, need to find out anything to do with Michael Jordan, of course. But uh, massive thanks to Chris for his time. And obviously you would have heard a, a few things in that interview and in terms of uh, upcoming dates for Luke Longley, October. Clearly, we obviously do those interviews uh, quite a way in advance. Uh, Luke Longley, of course, did a great speaking tour around Australia uh, towards the end of 2022, which uh, Chris was involved in organising. So uh, just uh, if you're wondering what that was about, that was there as well. But uh, obviously as well, the Jack Jumpers too, at least at the time of recording this, about to head into season two of the Jack Jumpers in the NBL. And by the time we release this, uh, the season will basically be over with. So uh, hopefully we'll be talking uh, on a different episode another time regarding the Jack Jumpers winning a championship in their second season. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But uh, thanks again to Chris for his time. As always, social media, you can follow more on the show, off the podium, Instagram, Twitter, 
Facebook if you want to find those on there. YouTube, as I mentioned, the video version of this on there. And you can find all of our other great video interviews that are on that platform as well. And if you never want to miss an episode of Off the Podium, the best way, of course, is to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Search for Off the Podium. Remember to subscribe to the show so you never miss that episode and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear, of course, what you think of the show. You're going to love the show coming up in the next few episodes. We are going to the sport of skateboarding for the very first time next episode. I'm so pumped and excited to bring you an Olympian from the sport of skateboarding. Never before on Off the Podium until next episode. Stay tuned for that. Then after that, other sports we've got coming your way with some interviews. We've got ice hockey coming your way. We've got swimming coming your way. There's so much that we are covering, of course. Colin, myself, and Jared, we've uh, obviously uh, come to you for the last episode. Great episode it was. Clearly, it was fantastic. One of our best. Uh, More of those to come over the coming months as well. And uh, later this year, we will have our Looking Ahead to Paris 2024 episode where we just go over what's happening about a year away from the Games, where we're at, and everything else in between. Always like bringing you those episodes as well. Big thanks again to Chris. Big thanks to you for listening to this episode, wherever you are listening to us on this great big planet of ours. My name is Ben. This is Off the Podium. Shout out to the Birmingham Bull. Remember to go left and fizzle dizzle.